Hi, I'm Miriam Axelute, and you're listening to The Making of the Nation's Biggest Housing Co-op on Shelterforce. Affordable housing activists spend a lot of time talking about how to bring about solutions that match the scale of the problem. Co-ops and community land trusts, frequently mentioned strategies for creating permanently affordable housing, often face challenges about their potential to scale up. It seems timely, then, that a new book is out about the largest housing cooperative in the country, a development of phenomenal scale and longevity, Co-op City in the Bronx. Freedom Land, Co-op City and the Story of New York, by Oberlin College history professor Anne-Marie Sammartino, traces the history of Co-op City from its initial planning stages in the mid-1960s through the early 1990s, including a major rent strike, the assertion of community control, race and class dynamics, and the ways the development reflected what was happening in New York City as a whole. Shelterforce spoke with San Martino about her book and about what we might learn from Co-op City today. So, Emery, tell me about um, how you got interested in writing a book on Co-op City. Sure. So, I mean, I guess the very short answer to that question is I grew up in Co-op City. Um, and the slightly longer version is, yes, I did grow up in Co-op City. My family moved there when I was, um, like, before I had any memories. I was, like, you know, a year old. Mm-hmm. And, but I was not interested in writing about that. I was, I was a German historian by training. My first book is in German history, but to write that first book, I lived in Berlin for a number of years. And when I would describe where I grew up to friends of mine who may have been to New York, but definitely had never been to, to co-op, they, um, you know, I would compare it to this neighborhood in um, East Berlin that kind of looked a little bit like it. And after answering that question like a thousand times, I started wondering, like, why do these neighborhoods look familiar, like so similar? Is there like a story there? And I really thought I would just read like, you know, a book about Co-op City and I would do some research about Germany because I knew there wasn't anything written about this development in Germany. I'm very much written about it. Um, But then I couldn't find a book on Co-op City. And so I started doing research and realized like, there was a much more interesting story than I knew anything about, um, but also that no one had really told that story before. And it was like that combination of things that made me like, first I wrote some about those two developments together, and it was kind of more like planning history, um, architectural history, and then um, realized that the comparison was interesting in those terms, but there was so much other stuff that I just, wanted to learn about and so when you you grew up there and it's it's a very un it feels like a very unusual place at least in this Mm -hmm. country um at what point did you kind of realize that Mm -hmm. you grew up in a very unusual special place compared to most americans you know i have to say i don't think i grew up there thinking of it as a particularly unique or special place at all and i'll say it for a couple of reasons one is you know, as I sort of say in the book, I mean, you know, Co-op City is, 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 is designed in a way for like ordinary New Yorkers. So basically the people around you are all like ordinary New Yorkers. And I'd heard pieces of that history, but very little bit like, you know, the, the rent strike, for example, happened. Um, I was born like during the rent strike and my family moved to Co-op City right after the rent strike ended. And 
I knew I, growing up, I played with the children of the leaders of the rent strike. I mean, that's sort of, you know, who was my age in some cases. I lived right near the, the like main leader of the rent strike lived, I mean, literally like, you know, in the same courtyard as I did. But it was like, I didn't know anything about the history of the rent strike or anything like that. I just knew that it had happened. Can you give us the thumbnail about, you know, sure. what is Co-op City and, and how did it come mm -hmm. to be? Sure. So... Co-op City is a um, large, actually one of the large, it is the largest housing cooperative in America, possibly internationally. I'm not honestly sure. I've heard different things about that. Um, but it's about 15,000, it's 15,372 apartments. It's in a corner of the Northeast Bronx, um, kind of a little bit north of Pelham Bay Park, if you know Bronx. Um, and it was built in the mid 60s by a group called the united housing foundation and the united housing foundation was using um was part of this broader you know this broader push in new york state um, and new york city to produce affordable housing not just housing projects for the very poor but affordable apartment housing for um the middle class and for like the working like working class whatever and the united housing foundation has its origins in the lower east side actually and sort of housing movements um, um and cooperative housing was designed was originally really like essentially we're talking about like communist jews in these like co-ops that you might you know in in the bronx actually not far from where co-op city winds up in any event the united housing foundation builds co-op city it's their largest project and it's their final project using funding from New York State, this Mitchell Lama funding. Um, Co-op City is um, first occupied in the late 60s, but as a result of rising prices, which I could go into the details, but there's a number of reasons for it, prices wind up rising for people that are living there. And by the mid 1970s, they have what they call a rent strike. Now in reality, the rent strike is not a rent strike. They're not paying rent. People that live there own, because it's cooperative, they own a piece of the development as a whole. Everyone buys in, that's what they call an equity deposit, and then you pay monthly carrying charges. Um, these carrying charges pay the mortgage, they pay operating expenses, they pay utilities. Okay. In this rent strike really is a carrying charge strike, but, but essentially carrying charges had risen. They were projected to rise up to 250% over what they'd been originally projected as. The rent, so this rent strike, about 80% of the population participate in it. They win resident control of the development um, away from the United Housing Foundation. When we think of a co-op, we tend to think of it as being resident controlled, but right. um, this started off as a co-op in, in some ways, but had, because sure. was it because it was so large or you know what, what made it that there needed another step to become That's resident? a great question. Um, so the United Housing Foundation, essentially what they have are two kinds of shares. There's A shares and B shares. Residents had what were B shares. Essentially what the idea was that once they paid off the mortgage, then they would have these, then they would actually control the, the cooperative completely. And there were residents that sit on the, the board that's called River Bay, is the corporation that technically runs Co-op City. There are residents that sit on that board, but the majority of people on the board, so the majority of people making the decisions up until mid-75 are from the, it, it's actually literally the same people that are on the board of the United Housing Foundation. And the people that lived in Co-op City felt like, you know, this board was basically that they were paternalistic 
and that they didn't really have the best interests of the residents in mind. And so actually one of the very first things that happens when the, the rent strike happens is that the resident members of the board quit the board, right? As sort of saying, look, you know, we're, this is just a sham. We're not actually in control. And so one tenant, one resident activist says essentially, look, you guys treat us like owners when you want to like basically make us pay more money. You know, you want us to assume more risk. Um, and more, you know, quote unquote responsibility, but you treat us like tenants when you just tell us what to do. So like we basically have the responsibility without the power. Um, whereas the, the idea of cooperative housing that this was building on really was this idea in which those two, th it was essentially this, the, the idea was originally to essentially remove the, this housing from the capitalist housing market with this idea that you would create housing. And then once you get this funding from the state and you're paying back that mortgage and sure that's capitalist or whatever but within it you could create a kind of almost socialist space for people in which they shop at cooperative stores they would create cooperative institutions like um you know cooperative um they talk you know they actually start like cooperative like uh nursery schools stuff like that cooperative community groups etc cetera, etc cetera. um but then as you know i talked about like in part because we're talking about this period in which costs are rising um you know and the city is when the state are winding up in financial issues whatever um that 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 sort of island in a way like just doesn't work and maybe it also wouldn't have worked just simply because of the size of it co-op city is three times larger than any other cooperative that the united housing foundation starts the next largest is Rochdale village in queens but most of their cooperatives are actually quite a bit smaller than that um and at least the 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 leadership of the united housing foundation would later claim that the reason why co-op city winds up having all these problems is that the people that live there don't take their responsibility seriously enough as owners of the cooperative and that's because it's too big they don't know each other well enough they don't have enough of a sense of like common purpose and do you think that was an accurate assessment i don't in part because i would say like the fact that 80 percent of residents wind up supporting the rent strike tells me that there is a common purpose it's just not the same as the united housing foundation's sense of common purpose now I don't want to, to minimize the fact that that unity during the rent strike does fracture afterwards. Um, like many movements like it, you know, it's hard to sustain once you don't have like a clear enemy in the same way. But I think that you do have this sense of, of community there. Thing is, there are several ways in which that community is created in part by this, you know, clear villain in a way of New York State trying to raise rates and the United Housing Foundation and kowtowing to them and all that. Um, but then, you know, there's also a kind of failure to harness it once the rent strike ends, the state is then not interested in negotiating with the rent. There's basically like, here, you can have it. You now have resident control, but you still have to pay this mortgage. They refuse to subsidize, they refuse to negotiate really until eventually they're kind of forced to into the 80s. So how did it come to economically stabilize? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that happen. So the basically, so when Co-op City is, um, so when the rent strike ends, you know, Co-op City still has all this debt. And basically they're given like a, a year, originally six months, but within a year to figure out like, okay, you say that the problem was the United Housing Foundation, you figure out how you're going to pay it. 
And actually, the state also then commissions a bunch of studies, basically, like, what could we do to make co-op city economically viable? And the, the, the thing that the state wants is what they call an economic rent. Essentially, what they want is co-op city to be economically self-sufficient. And they want this for all Mitchell Lama development, so that it would require no ongoing subsidy from the state, etc. There's this, like, negotiations in the early 70s or in the late 70s into the very early 80s that in theory are supposed to put co-op city on the path to an economic rent in the mid 80s the state and and there are people that oppose this in co-op city they they feel like the increases are too high at least for a period they're higher than the increases in rates rent stabilized housing which a lot of people had left to move to co-op city etc so you know whatever there's there's anger about that in the mid 80s three important things happen. One is that the state realizes, and River Bay for that matter, realized that there are major construction defects in Co-op City. Construction defects, like they have to replace the entire plumbing system, stuff like that. That will mean that an economic rent that we could pay both for the mortgage that had already been incurred, ongoing expenses, and these construction defects would soar out of, you know, beyond what, what anyone could really pay. And the state also recognized, like there's in the back of their head, the, the negotiators, and they even they talk about this, you know, in their own like internal memos, they recognize they don't want to, that, that like, they don't want to push Co-op City too far because they know there could be another, like what if there was another rent strike? The rent strike almost causes the bankruptcy of the state housing finance agency. So they don't want that again. And essentially the state realizes that they'll have to choose between self-sufficiency like this economic rent concept and um a um afford and affordable housing and in part because of this pressure from the residents of co-op city who are still like very focused on affordability um and because of this memory of the rent strike in part and because also by this point you know the state and is in a better situation financially than it was in the mid-70s they retreat from this hardline position and starting in 1986, they start kind of like the, the, le the level of increases go down and they start the co-op city's leadership and River, Bay, uh, and River Bay and New York State start working together a little bit more to kind of because of the sort of that they both recognize essentially that they're stuck with each other. And they both recognize the value of, of having like good livable affordable housing. And so at this point, River Bay is is controlled by a majority of residents. It's all residents after 1976. It's all residents in charge. Now, that's not to say it's not incredibly fractious. I mean, these are residents that disagree with each other about all sorts of things. But the, the one sort of thing that they all do have in common is this um, is again this this desire to guarantee the affordability of Co-op City. And I'll say one other thing that's important here that is important in part like so co-op city is so large that it has representatives that don't only represent co-op city but a lot of their like both there's there's assembly person over i think over 50 percent of the assembly person's um uh constituency is in co-op city it's a little bit less for state senate but still a significant plurality um, and so therefore co-op city has like a kind of power in albany in the state legislature that other developments just don't have. So, you know, there are people that are willing to advocate for co-op city, 
um, at that level, you know, and as well as the fact that like they really could, I mean, they, they can trigger real problems for the state budget, right. et cetera, et cetera, in a way that like a smaller development can't. And so that gives them a kind of leverage um, that enables that activism to have a kind of effect. And speaking of that size, that also means that that there's politicking internally. Yeah. So, I mean, the elections, there's there are this has actually changed over time, but the short version is there are elections. Um, the elections happen across the cooperative to elect um, representatives to this River Bay board. And those representatives serve, you know, make all decisions in theory about the cooperative. And in fact, one of the real issues that they run into when they take power of the cooperative in the late 70s is that like these aren't people who have experience running an organization this big. Um, you know, the budgets are huge, the the kind of learning curve is huge. I mean, they're suddenly higher, you know, everything from like, let's design playgrounds, let's, you know, fix the laundry rooms, let's figure out how we're going to replace this, um, you know, plumbing system. And so, you know, in the period that I'm looking at, you have this highly activated community, like, you know, in the rent strike, you have these like, at, you know, meetings, thousands of people on the outdoors in the screenway, indoor meetings, you know, a thousand people easily could show up to various meetings. That's petered out. Now you have trouble like getting a quorum for elections. Fewer people are concerned. Some of that is simply because um, I mean, most recently in some of it's a pandemic, but even before that, you know, once really from the mid 80s, early 90s ish, you know, the cost increase have been a lot lower so that that animating force of keeping the cooperative affordable is less animating just because there's less they've had to do less to do it they've kind of did that hard work already and so talk about you know how about the affordability is it sure is it is it affordable at sort of the same income level not direct levels mm. but levels as it was when it started or where does it fit in that? Yes. Yeah. So the them? mean, the median income, this is using Stensis statistics of Co-op City has been almost exactly the national median income from the time Co-op City was founded until today. Like it, I have a chart in the book where it's like, you can see it's just they track um, very closely together. And just to give you a sense of what that means in terms of numbers. So you still have to pay a equity deposit to move into the cooperative, but you can finance that. Um, and there's like low cost financing options or subsidized by the state, whatever. Okay. So if you want to move into actually here, let me get this, this, um, I, I'm just checking the, the exact numbers. Okay. If you want to move into the, um, largest apartment, so this is a 6.5 room apartment. So that's a three bedroom apartment, basically. Um, you would pay an equity deposit of a little under uh, $50,000. Again, that's financeable. Um, and then you pay carrying charges of a little over $1,600 a month. So to put that in, um, you know, comparison, like this is, I mean, it's well below like the median, the median rent, I think I saw in Manhattan right now, it's like $4,000 a month, the yeah. average is five over $5,000 a month, whatever. And that's for all sizes of apartments. What I'm talking about here are the largest apartments. Um, you know, so Co-op City, and and it, this is Mitchell-Lama, I mean, all these Mitchell-Lama, you know, they're highly sought after. Co-op City is, has a wait list, it's had a wait list for almost its entire existence, simply because it really is affordable. Because the other thing to mention is those carrying charges, that includes utilities, including central air conditioning. 
So, you know, the, like, these are, they're big apartments. They're, you know, even the three room apartments, which are the smallest apartments are still, there's three like pretty nice sized rooms. And so Co-op City is a really good deal aside from the fact that it's obviously in the North Bronx, it's hard to get to a lot of places, whatever. But aside from that, I mean, a lot of other features of it are, you know, quite, um, you know, make it not just, you know, these aren't just like good apartments for like for affordable housing. These are like good apartments that are also very affordable. Did the vision of having cooperative businesses and other things nearby or even just businesses yeah. I, I saw I looked at we were looking on the map as we were yeah. talking about this internally and it looks like there's a shopping plaza there like the original vision of co-op city there were two three main shopping centers within the development and those mostly in fact even I remember my like when I was very very little most of them I think were cooperative business they weren't all but at least some of them were like the grocery store was definitely a cooperative grocery store they're still an amalgamated bank you know whatever um but the one of the things as Co-op City was looking to be more of, of like to basically get more money without necessarily raising costs for residents is that they started raising rents for businesses and so what you start seeing is like those cooperative businesses leaving and then other you know businesses coming in more chain stores etc and then the other thing that happened in and in the um late 80s was that um this big mall bay plaza anyone who's been to like the north bronx or lower westchester has at least gotten caught in bay plaza traffic um it gets built and then gets expanded over time now it's you know quite large um and that was built you know in part like some of the revenue obviously does go to co-op city whatever but it was developed by a private developer and it was not part of this cooperative you know, it was not, it was never intended to be like a cooperative space. The other thing though, I'll note about these early shopping centers, you know, where you had the cooperative optical store, the cooperative grocery, the cooperative, you know, butcher, whatever, um, is that they were called, they're called community centers. And so you have the stores, but then you also have all of these like meeting rooms underneath them, like in the basement, um, you know, they are also, frankly, in the buildings. Um, so most of Cobb City, these huge towers, right? And mo and they all have like, you know, meeting rooms in them. And, you know, some of it was stuff like, I mean, we're going like many children's birthday parties in these rooms or whatever. But it was also the idea was that this could be a space where people could, you know, come together for all sorts of you know community reasons and you know at, at least at first you know the united housing foundation would publish these lists of like all the community organizations and co-op and that was like a sign right of the the health of the community in their minds and so they didn't see shopping as something separate from that they saw shopping as like another piece of this sense of like kind of cooperative communal you know socialization development etc cetera, etc cetera. and are those community rooms still there they're still there. I'm not sure how much they're used. I mean, I think they're used for some things, but, you know, um, I think less so than they were, you know, in, in decades past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier this idea of, you know, removing housing that from the market. Um, and I've had some conversations with, with people who say, like, can't entirely insulate it from right. the market. The market is affecting it, but maybe we should be talking about removing it from the speculative market. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so just how has the market 
you've talked a little bit about it, but yeah. you know, how much have they been able to insulate from it and how much is it, mm -hmm. you know, you right. respond? No, to it's it. a great question. I mean, so, okay. So co-op city, the way a uh, thing I mentioned, right. So to, to buy, to, to get an apartment in co-op city, you pay this equity deposit. Um, and then you pay these caring charges. And then when you leave, you get the equity deposit back, whatever the equity deposit is at that point. So essentially you've bought like a share and then you get your share back. Now, this is not, and, and so really during the 60s, during the 70s, when, you know, New York City, like housing, so both rental housing is often in, you know, pretty atrocious shape as whatever, but also it's like really like apartments are cheap to buy, but it's unclear if they're going to gain any value, right? Co-op city is like secure, right? You buy in, you buy out, you, you, it is not speculative really. And the rate of increase is not of the equity deposit is not based on like the market rate exactly. I'm not exactly sure how they calculate it, but it's not market. Rate. In any event, um, what winds up and, and so then co-op, so the one way, so co-op city in a way is, is this like little insulated pocket. But one thing that starts to happen in the late eighties is, you know, the housing market starts, New York is recovering. The housing market is going up. Middle-class people who can afford this equity deposit also would have the choice potentially of buying either in the city or in the nearby suburbs and buying starts looking more attractive as the housing market is look you know as as the sort of you know whatever it looks like a good investment and so now you have a speculative housing market which is competing and is it sort of looks to be winning so by by so by the early 90s co-op city is facing a um uh, a vacancy crisis um, because not enough people want to move into the development. And the what everyone says is, well, because it's not a quote unquote good investment. Now, this is one of those places where the state winds up coming in and essentially negotiating with River Bay and they, they wind up lowering the equity deposits. They wind up making them fully financeable. This changes a lot, you know, of, of stuff, but that then people start, you know, moving in or whatever. Um, and but like in general, co and one issue I've heard people say is that like living in co-op city, you can't quote unquote build equity. And so, you know, if you want to move out, you're sort of almost starting from scratch because you're going to get your equity deposit back, but that's not enough. And often, you know, because of repairs that need to be done to the apartment or whatever, you're not going to get that much back. Um, and so that continues to like kind of be an issue there. But, you know, I think what you're saying is right. Like it's not, it's impossible even for a large cooperative in the United States to be fully separated from capitalism. What you're watching here though, is a kind of way in which capitalism is almost dampened. And while you're in it, it's less powerful. It's not something that's motivating, you know, aside from the initial decision to move in, um, or potentially move out, it's not motivating decisions in the same way that it might, you know, in other kinds of housing. We need more affordable housing in yeah. this country, uh, clearly, and and uh, by many assessments, more housing in general. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you think about the co-op city model as a potential for looking at our right. 
housing supply questions. So I think one important lesson from Co-op City is that, is that like, you know, people will create, you put people in a space, there is a community simply because you have people there. Now, what that community looks like may be different. It may, you know, you can influence it in certain ways, but architecture is not a huge, I, I don't think a huge influence. And I think Co-op City tells that story in part. In fact, in some ways, the towers wind up being really conducive to community because you have all these people standing around waiting for elevators all the time, right? Um, okay, so then the other question, another question is, is this cooperative financing model, you know, a good one? And I think that in some ways it is, you know, um, you know, in particular, Mitchell Lama housing, right, where you which essentially operated as a subsidy to developers. It was saying, you know, like, here, you can have these low cost loans, but you need to reserve these apart, like all of these apartments need to go to people that meet these certain income qualifications. So they can't, they, they're not going to be market rate. So you have to keep your rates low and then you get this, you get to build more cheaply. What I think Co-op City shows is that that doesn't guarantee affordability, right? I mean, we know because we, there's a rent strike in the mid '70s, so that tells us that that the model alone doesn't do everything. But what it also tells us is that, you know, the other features you need are engaged residents to the degree you can, you know, be engaged, an engaged community, and you need ongoing investment on the part of you know, government entities, that it's not simply something where you subsidize developers and then just sort of let it all go and then you're done. Um, it does require a kind of community investment. And by community, I mean both within the development and beyond the development, it requires that investment in order to sustain affordable housing. And I think that sometimes when people think about affordable housing, I mean, not always, and it's obviously a generalization, there's a tendency to focus like, okay, well, what's the funding mechanism? How do we get these things built? But what needs to be recognized is it's not just like you build it, people move in, and then you want it to have longevity. You want people to, to feel, you know, a sense of commitment. You want people to get a sense of safety. You want how, I mean, personally, you know, how's, when people, if you ask people, like, what do you want your house to be? Or how do you think about your house? You know, the, the words people use a lot of times is like safety, security, love, you know, all those sorts of things. They're not talking about speculation or profit center or whatever, even if, in America, most people are living in a house that they do think of as an investment, right? Um, but in order for it to have that emotional valence of providing people with security and stability and, and community, it requires ongoing investment and ongoing, um, you know, uh, attention to not just building the housing, but also maintaining it. I think this is a particular model that like, you know, states got and cities and whatever got scared off in the mid 70s by the spectacular sort of collapse of the New York City like social welfare model and co-op city shows that that investment can actually bear fruit over time. And that, you know, what might have looked like this spectacular failure in the mid 70s to some people you know, viewed from the perspective of 2022, actually, it's like this seems almost this like shocking success story in some way. That's a really good point. Really good point. And just to clarify, is there still an income restriction for? There is. There is. So like all Mitchell Lama housing, there's a minimum and a maximum. And the maximum, if you pay, if you earn more than that, even once you're, so every year, someone that lives in Mitchell Lama housing, like, my mom still lives in co-op, you know, she has to, or my sister does it for, I guess, fill out an income affidavit 
you know, and submit her tax returns to see, does she still qualify? And if you earn above a certain amount, you have to pay a subsidy. And also to be on the Mitchell Lama waiting, like to be on the waiting list for a co-op city apartment, like any Mitchell Lama, you have to show that you your income qualifies you to live there. Um, and these income qualifications, you know, they've gone up over time. I mean, at this point, so I talked about that, the largest apartment, um, the, the maximum income for, um, uh, four or more residents in that 6.5, so basically three bedroom apartment is $167,000 a year. So it's like, we're talking about a middle, that's reaching pretty high into the middle class, but still, I mean, living in New York, even earning that much, you could easily have a problem finding affordable housing somewhere else. Indeed. So you've mentioned, um, race and the multiracial nature mm -hmm. of Co-op City a couple of times. And I know that, you know, co-ops in other parts of the country had actually had difficulty getting financing when they wanted, intentionally mm -hmm. wanted to be multiracial um, in, in the mid 20th century. So tell us a little bit more about those dynamics. And there isn't a problem necessarily with that, with getting financing through the state or be in part because we're talking about state financing rather than local banks or whatever, um, you know, because it's racially integrated and because everyone is theoretically all like middle class, they all have the money for this equity deposit. It's seen as like sort of like non-threatening, right? It's like a non-threatening way to create an integrated community. But again, the, what the United Housing Foundation hews to is this idea like what they want is a community that is economically homogenous, but racially integrated. What does that mean? They're willing to advertise in the black press, they're willing to advertise in the Spanish speaking press, whatever, but what they're not willing to do is change the income requirements in any way to, to make it like available to a wider range of incomes. Um, the, the, the city government, which is in charge of some pieces of this, they are pushing the United Housing Foundation to be more um, economically diverse, in part because they see that as a way of achieving more racial diversity, right? Um, now, as it is, as I said, you know, the United Housing Foundation like pushes back on this when Co-op City opens, it is very similar demographics to New York City. Um, you know, if anything, maybe slightly less white um, uh, than New York City as a whole. Um, you know, but it is very economically homogenous. This winds up in some ways creating a different dynamic. So is there anything else that I, that, you know, we didn't touch on that you think is really important for people to know about Co-op City? Co-op City is, has been reviled in a lot of places because it's, it's, a, it's sort of blamed for the decline of other parts of the Bronx. And the way the story goes is that you know, Co-op City starts soliciting applications in the late 60s, and basically all of these like Jews in the West Bronx abandon their neighborhoods, and those neighborhoods decline because those people all want to move to Co-op City because they didn't want to live with like Black and Hispanic people. So the truth to it is it is indeed true that a lot of the people that first moved to Co-op City are Jews from the West Bronx, and in particular, these na the neighborhoods like around the Grand Concourse. You know, these are people who couldn't, you know, and 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 in many ways, their moving is motivated by a degree of racism. You know, the sense that their understanding of what community decline means is basically it's becoming, you know, 
like and and they're watching indeed like crime is actually rising they are watching you know drug use is becoming a bigger issue but what they are in many ways understanding or or, or conflating that with is the fact that it's becoming also becoming more black and hispanic now i've talked about the fact that co-op city itself is racially integrated um, that many of the same people who leave the West Bronx because they don't want to live near, like, they feel like the neighborhood is declining and their sign for that is seeing basically more black people move to Co-op City and then are happy to live in what they see as a multicultural community. So it's really complex and contradictory in a lot of ways, right? Sometimes it gets used as almost like, to almost imagine that there's like a zero sum game when it comes to affordable housing. Like you think this affordable housing is good, but you're going to destroy these other communities. And I think that that's an important thing to kind of think through, like, when is that actually happening? When is that not actually happening? How can we create affordable housing and create affordable housing on a scale that we need it in this country with while also being, you know, understanding that that will potentially have effects on other communities and strengthening those communities where people don't move to, other, to new affordable housing. And so I think that like, you know, what I, I think that co-op city is like a useful sort of experiment to think, to use, to think through affordable housing, both the sort of positive dynamics of it, that things that worked well, but also things that maybe didn't work well or stories that we tell or whatever, not to use this as a way, as an excuse not to build affordable housing, but rather to use it as a way of thinking about like the, like recognizing the absolute necessity of affordable housing and then using this as an experiment to think through what that might look like and how to make that happen in the most equitable way possible. If you want more great in-depth content that explores issues in housing and community development, visit our website at shelterforce.org.